Well, good morning to you. How are you guys? You doing okay? Awesome. Awesome. If you're new to Table Community, whether you're in the room or watching at home, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. Um, in just a moment, we will uh, dive into the scriptures, but before we do, two quick things. I was told right before I walked up on stage that there's a yellow beetle in the parking lot that left its lights on. There you go. Founder. <laughs> That's announcement number one. So far, one for one. Announcement number two is uh, just for those of you in the middle, thank you for your patience with the projector. Technology is awful. And uh, our projector died this week. And Amazon is also awful and didn't get it here in time. So uh, we hopefully will have it up and uh, working next week. But you guys can see the sides. And you know what? Who cares? So... <laughs> Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will just dive right into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together, for this moment. Thank you for an opportunity to gather with other followers of your son, Jesus, as we sing and study your word and take communion. God, we partake in these sacred acts, as believers have been doing for thousands of years, not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we, we do these things because we believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our mind and our hearts to your voice. May we continue to be changed by the truth in this book, and may the gospel of Jesus, the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ, be exalted in every passage we look at. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, as we begin, let's play a little word association game. Now, I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to think to yourself, what goes through your mind when you hear the phrase, born again Christian? What goes through your mind when you hear the phrase, born again Christian? My guess is there are some in this room, like my wife, who did not grow up around the church. And so you don't bring any kind of cultural Christianity baggage into this room. And so maybe you hear born-again Christian and it's just ambiguous or maybe confusing, but it doesn't carry any sort of negative connotation for you. There are others in the room, and my guess is there are a large number of you who associate it immediately with American politics. And understandably so, the phrase born again was thrust into the public sphere in 1976 when then Democratic presidential candidate Jimmy Carter announced that he was born again and would later win the election, receiving over 60% of the born again evangelical vote. Fast forward several years to 2016 and then Republican candidate Donald Trump professed to be a born again Christian and went on to receive 80% of the born again evangelical vote. Now, I am not trying to be political here, so please just settle down if that frustrates you. My point in telling you that is this, that being born again, at least in the political realm, has far less to do with belief and behavior and far more to do with securing a certain demographic of the population and getting their vote. So maybe some of you, you hear born-again Christian and you just immediately associate it with American politics. Others uh, may hear this phrase, born again, and it brings up all sorts of baggage and shame from your youth, and in particular, shame around your sexuality. Let me explain what I mean by that, because I know that might be confusing if you didn't grow up around the church. I heard one gal this week talk about all the times she grew up in youth group and recommitted herself to being a born-again virgin. Now, if that seems like strange, like that phrase just feels really foreign to you, uh, let me explain. For those of you that were not youth group kids growing up in the 90s, uh, back in the 90s, or as I heard one high schooler recently say, in the late 1900s, um, 
It stings, doesn't it? <laughs> In the late 1900s, there were these things called True Love Waits Retreats. How many of you are familiar with that? True Love Waits Retreats. Okay. So it was, the, it was part of the purity movement of the late 90s. And the whole premise of the retreat was to take all of these junior high and high school students uh, away for the weekend where they would spend the weekend talking about how God designed our sexuality to be saved until marriage. And so they're talking about true love, marriage as true love. And the big crescendo of the weekend, the, the whole thing was pointed to this moment at the end of the weekend where they would have every student sign a card committing themselves to remain virgins until they got married. Hence the name, true love waits. True love waits. Now, just as a side note, because it, it always makes me laugh, I got invited to go to my first True Love Waits retreat when I was in sixth grade. And uh, this was before I had hit puberty. Sorry if that's TMI. Uh, welcome to Table Community, where we talk about these things, apparently. So I, I go to this True Love Waits retreat, and I hear these speakers talking about like sex and pregnancy and STDs. And I was like, yuck, like who would ever want to, to do this? And so when they, when they pulled out the, the cards at the end of the weekend, and they go like, who wants to sign a card committing themselves to never having sex until they get married? I was like, I'll take two of them. Like, give, me, give them to me. I want to sign the card and go play with my buddies. And so I sign these stupid cards and uh, I go play with my buddies. And then a few months later, uh, my body started to change. My voice started to squeak and I started to notice girls. And I, I was like, why did I sign the stupid card? You know, like I totally didn't understand what I was even committing to. Anyways, at those retreats, this is why I bring this up. It was very common at those retreats for the leaders to say something like this. Look, maybe you're here and you've already messed up. Like, you've already had sex. We would invite you to sign the card and recommit your life. You can become a born-again virgin. So for some people in the room, this phrase, it carries a lot of, like, confusion and even shame, specifically around your sexuality. And here's why I bring all of that up. There is a tendency at times when a word or a phrase or an idea gets confusing or weird to just throw the phrase out entirely, sort of a baby with the bathwater situation. But I am going to ask you to resist that urge this morning. Today, we're going to look at a passage where we see this phrase born again, and we will see that it is not only very biblical, but it is a very beautiful phrase, one that we should want to identify with. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, if you're in the middle here, words are not on the screen, but there are actual paper Bibles underneath your chairs, and you can probably see the screens here on the side. So John chapter 3, we continue our 17-year-long series through John's gospel. We made it to chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 1, and we're going to cover a big chunk today, at least for us, and we're going to cover about 15 verses. So pick it up in verse 1. If you're new to our church, we'll just read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, until we get to the end of the text for the day. So, John chapter 3, verse 1. It goes like this. Now, okay, stop for a second. <laughs> before we go past that, we need to stop and remind ourselves of what came right before this. Because we need to remember that chapter and verse numbers are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. These were added much later in Christian history. So John didn't write this. In other words, John didn't write this, finish his thought in chapter two, sit back and go, chapter three, and then start a new story. He's just writing one continual story. So look back just a few verses to what we covered last week, verses 23 through 25. Let me read this to you. It says this. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, pay attention to verse 25. This is kind of the transition sentence. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man. You see the connection there. So, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man, and there was a man. This is a continuation. Continue reading. Verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we are introduced here to our main character, a guy named Nicodemus. But this isn't just any dude. This isn't just some random guy. He is a ruler, the text says, a ruler of the Jews, which most likely means that he is a ruling member of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men in Israel at the time. So he is educated. He is respected. He is wealthy. He is very religious. And watch what he does in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, this little detail of him coming at night has a bit of a double meaning here in the text. On one hand, scholars and commentators are very quick to point out that he comes by night because of his position in the community and his desire to not be seen by the rest of the community. So he's coming at night in order to be discreet or to hide in the darkness. But the other way to view this is through the lens of John's literary style. And all throughout his gospel, John will play with these metaphors of light and darkness, night and day. And night and darkness is always symbolic of ignorance or spiritual blindness in John's gospel. So what John is saying here is here comes a man who has it all together. He is smart. He is wealthy. He is respected. He is religious. But he is still in the dark, spiritually speaking. Does that make sense? Okay. So he comes by night. Keep reading. And he said to him, so he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The fact that he calls Jesus rabbi tells us that he at the very least has respect for Jesus, apparently because of all the miraculous things that Jesus had been doing, which we talked about last week. So it's good that he calls Jesus rabbi because Jesus was in fact an excellent teacher, but he was so much more than just an excellent teacher. So keep reading, look at verse three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. So anytime you see that phrase, truly, truly, you need to pay attention. This is an important thing that Jesus is going to say. Catherine, who was uh, helping lead us in worship earlier, says that this is Jesus' way of saying like, look, buddy, like listen up. This is important. So Jesus answered him, look, buddy, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there it is. There's that phrase, born again, which carries so much baggage in our culture. Now, keep in mind, this idea of being born again is not a familiar phrase to Nicodemus, okay? In fact, as far as we know, this is the first time in human history that it's being used in this way. So Nicodemus must be just totally flabbergasted at this point. Like, place yourself in his sandals for a moment. Like, he is super confused. Have you ever... Have you ever seen something or heard something that just did not compute in your mind? Like you, you saw it, you heard it, you know that it's real, and yet it just doesn't make any sense because it's just so random or so confusing. If you were to ask my wife this question, she would answer by telling you a, a story of our marriage from a couple of years ago. And this is uh, slightly embarrassing to tell all of you uh, this morning, but I think it illustrates the point really well. 
A couple of years ago, uh, for a reason that I cannot explain, except for the fact that in my quasi-dream state, it made sense, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I get out of bed, and I stand next to our bed, and I just kind of look around the room, and then I get back in bed. But I don't get back in bed like a normal human being. I get back in bed upside down, under the covers, feet at the foot of the bed, or head at the foot of the bed, feet on the pillow, right next to my wife's head. I just lay my feet ever so slightly on the pillow. My wife, who is a light sleeper, watches this whole thing play out. And she's just, she watches me get out of bed. I stand there, I look around the room. I crawl back in bed under the covers and lay my feet beside her face. And she just goes, what are you doing? And, and I responded uh, in a frustrated tone as if she was the weird one in this situation. And I said, it's just better this way. And she goes, okay. And then she goes back to sleep. Because what else are you going to do in that moment other than go like, this doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. I asked the question like, why are you doing that? You tell me it's better that way. It's like, all right. Well, then I'm going back to bed because you're weird. Okay. So I think what happens here, back to the text, is Nicodemus hears this phrase from Jesus. It does not compute. He hears it. He knows it's true. He knows it's not a dream. He hears it, and he's like, I need an explanation. Like, it's not computing in my mind what you're attempting to tell me. So watch what he says in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, he's reeling here. He's like, time out. Born again? Like, back into my mother's womb? Like, this, this just does not Compute, it doesn't make any sense to me. So Jesus answered. He says, look, buddy, <laughs> I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is all sorts of scholarly debate around what this water and spirit line is referring to. So it could refer to the water breaking in a natural biological birth. It could also refer to the water baptism, like a water baptism like we celebrate each year up at the Aishan farm. It could refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which if you grew up in like a charismatic church or Pentecostal church, you might be more familiar with that phrase. I personally lean towards the way the ESV study Bible interprets it, as well as uh, Gospel of John scholar Andreas Kostenberger, who we've quoted a number of times in this series, which says that Jesus here is likely referencing a passage from Ezekiel. Let me show you this in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, prophesying about the future of his people, God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So what I think is happening here is when Jesus says water and spirit, he's talking about this one-time event, which we covered last week, where Jesus will give us a new heart. We receive new hearts. Now watch, he keeps going. Look at verse 6. It's a little confusing here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 
Now, this little section, verses 6 through 8, can be very confusing for a lot of reasons. One of the primary reasons it's confusing is because the Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma. And it's the same exact word that gets translated as breath and blow and wind. So in these few verses, you have one Greek word that's getting translated into English as multiple different words. And so it's very confusing. The truth is we could spend an entire sermon just talking about the Holy Spirit and use this metaphor of wind or the breath of God. The beauty is I don't have to because just recently Carrie Fay in our Advent series did that exact sermon. She talked about the Holy Spirit and she used this metaphor of breath or wind. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if this piques your interest. But for this morning, here's what I'll say. Whatever it is that Jesus is getting at here, whatever it is he's attempting to say, Nicodemus definitely doesn't understand it. Nicodemus does not understand, and he is growing more and more confused by the moment. Look at his reply in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus, you of all people should get this. You are a teacher of the law. You're the one responsible for understanding these things, and you don't even get it. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, the we here is likely in reference to either the the disciples or the prophets of old, but probably both at this point in the narrative. Keep reading verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And right here, in between verses 12 and 13, Jesus is going to tip his hand to Nicodemus. He is going to show his cards, and he is going to give Nicodemus a glimpse into the future in some ways. Look at this, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And spoiler alert, Nicodemus, I am him. I am the son of man. I am the one who descended from heaven. I am the one prophesied about back in Daniel chapter 7. And then Jesus reaches further back into the Jewish archives and he pulls out another example that Nicodemus would have remembered. Listen to this, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and he references Numbers chapter 21, a story that Nicodemus would have certainly known a story that he probably had memorized, a story about how God saved his people from death by looking to a bronze serpent on a pole. And he goes, do you remember this story, Nicodemus? Just like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent to save God's people in Numbers chapter 21, so must the Son of Man, i.e. me, be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, it's obvious to us But it was not obvious to Nicodemus in the moment. Jesus here is very clearly alluding to the inevitable day just a few years from this very moment where he would be nailed to a Roman cross and lifted high for all to see. Now we're going to stop in verse 15 this week and we'll pick up in verse 16 next week. But for now, I want to ask the question that we ask every week at this point in the the sermon. So what? So what? What do we do do with this strange passage? What does this idea of being born again, which is very confusing in our culture, 
What does it have to do with us? What do we do with this idea of a new birth? Well, here's the flow for the rest of our time. Regarding this new birth, I have three questions that I want to attempt to answer, okay? Three questions. The new birth, why do we need it? How do we get it? And what now? Why do we need it? How do we get it? And what now? First, if you're a note taker, this new birth, why do we need it? Why do we need a new birth? Why do we need to be born again? Well, the need for a new birth implies that there is something wrong with our old birth. There is something wrong inherently with our current state. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is good news, but it is not good news until you at least understand the bad news part of the story. Theologian and Presbyterian pastor Francis Schaeffer once said that if he was given one hour to share the gospel, he would spend the first 50 minutes telling someone the bad news, and then he would spend 10 minutes on the good news. So here's the bad news. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that every single one of us sitting here, every single one of you watching at home is guilty of sin and we have fallen short of God's glory. Ephesians 2, 3 tells us that we are each by nature, by default of being born into a broken world, we are each by nature children of wrath and therefore stand as enemies of God. Isaiah chapter 59 tells us that our iniquities have caused separation between us and God. As we have said throughout this entire series, We were created in the image of a triune, relational God, but because of our sin, that image has been marred and the relationship has been fractured. And there is nothing, and I say nothing, that we could ever do to fix it or make it better. No amount of good works, no amount of self-righteous behavior, no amount of religious ritual can mend the brokenness that sin has caused in our hearts. This is why we need new birth. This is why we need to be born again. Pastor David Platt says it like this, what we don't need is superficial religion. We need supernatural regeneration. We are dead in sin and we need to be born again. We are dead in sin. That is why we need this new birth. Second, the new birth. How do we get it? How do we get it? Jesus tells us very clearly in verse 15 of the passage we just studied, In order to get it, we look upon and we believe in the Son of Man who would one day be lifted high in the sky. Jesus says to a man who knows his Old Testament very well, who probably had Numbers 21 memorized, just like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, so shall I be lifted up. And whoever believes in me, whoever looks to me and believes will have eternal life. And suddenly this obscure, unclear story of Moses and some snake snaps into focus and we can see clearly that that story in Numbers 21 was simply a foreshadow, a signpost, a symbol of the one who was to come, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would be lifted up on the cross. We can see that because we're on this side of the cross. Looking back, we have the story to read, but the tragedy of the story we just read is that Nicodemus had no idea. He had no idea what Jesus was talking about because That conversation in John 3 was still several years away from the crucifixion. But eventually, that is exactly what happened, isn't it? We know from John chapter 19 that Nicodemus was still around after the death of Jesus. He was actually one of the men who helped bury Jesus. We'll get to that eventually in this series. But I have to wonder what it was like for Nicodemus when one day, a a few years from this very encounter, during a Passover celebration, 
when he gathered with hundreds of other people just outside the city walls of Jerusalem and watched as Roman soldiers nailed this guy Jesus to a cross. And they lifted that cross into place. And he watched Jesus, this man that he had a conversation with, hang and die an excruciating death. As he looked upon Jesus, I wonder if he had this very encounter running through his mind. I wonder if as he looked into the misery in Jesus' eyes, if he didn't have, have these words running through his mind. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, on the cross, Jesus took on the curse of our first birth, and we find healing and we find new birth by looking to the one who was lifted up in the wilderness that day. I read it this way in a commentary. On the cross, Jesus became the very embodiment of what was killing us. He became the curse. He became the embodiment of our sin. He absorbed the venom. And Jesus became the source of our healing so that all who look upon him live. When we look at the cross in faith, our sin and God's wrath are taken away and we live. We are healed by looking at what has been lifted up on the tree. We are healed by looking to Jesus. That is how we are healed. If you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you have heard me talk about or tell stories or quote Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. I tend to talk about him a lot. In 1850, Charles Spurgeon was a young 15-year-old boy. Uh, one morning, he was out running errands, and he got caught up in a snowstorm. The snow was so bad that he never actually made it to his destination. At some point, he got worried because of the weather, and he just tucked into a little primitive Methodist chapel to seek shelter. And there were about a dozen people gathered that morning, waiting on the preacher to show up. Spurgeon recounts this story in his journal, and I want you to listen to his words. He says this, I sometimes think... I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. Now, at some point throughout the sermon, the, the preacher notices Spurgeon sitting there. It's kind of like when you, when you walk in, maybe you're like doing the church shopping thing, you walk into a smaller church and everyone just turns and looks at you. It's very obvious that you're the new person there. It's kind of like that. So the, the guy's preaching. Spurgeon continues writing in his journal. He says this. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Aren't you glad I don't do that? <laughs> just like halfway through my sermon, I just go, ma'am, you look awful. Like you, you just look really tired. Like I, when someone tells you you look tired, that is the worst thing. You're like, actually, I slept great. This is just the way my face looks now. Like, anyways, okay. You look miserable, the guy says to him. Spurgeon continues, well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from me from the pulpit about my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. 
He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey this text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing else to do this day but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed by this one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. When I heard that word, look, What a charming word it seemed to be. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus and live. That is how we get this new birth. Third, and lastly, what now? What now? Let me speak to two different types of people that might be in the room this morning or watching from home. First, I want to talk to those of you in the room who, who are not yet followers of Jesus. And, and you're here for whatever reason. Like maybe you're here because your mom makes you come. Maybe you're here because you're, you're dating some girl and you don't really like Jesus, but you're really into her, and so you're just like tagging along. Um, or maybe you're genuinely curious. Like maybe you're like my friend Matt who got baptized last summer. And, and you just, you're just curious. You have a lot of questions. So maybe you just got on Google and said like, search churches near me and you just showed up. Okay, I don't know how you ended up here, but I, I, wanna, I wanna speak to you. And I'm not gonna tell you, you look miserable. We're not gonna start out that way like Spurgeon. But here's what I want you to know. All you have to do to reverse the curse of sin and death is to turn from your former ways Bible says repent, to turn from your former ways and look to Jesus, the Son of God, crucified for you and believe in him. It is that simple. I pray that this church would be a welcoming and non-judgmental place for you to explore Christianity, where you feel safe asking questions and trying to come to a, a better understanding of who this Jesus is. But this idea of looking to Christ, it's, it's not just for those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus. That's a huge part of it, but it's also for the rest of us. My guess is for the majority of us who have already, we've already looked to Christ, we've already placed our faith in him. It also applies to us. So one of the things we've said a lot is, over the years is where we place our eyes matters. Where we look matters. Here's what I mean. Every single one of us has a propensity to look anywhere and everywhere but to Jesus for our security, our comfort, our identity, and our salvation. That's why we look to work, to our bank account, to our spouse for meaning and purpose. But those things will always let you down. They will never fully satisfy the longing in your soul. As we said in week two of the Gospel of John series, way back in September, You were made by and for and through Jesus. By and for and through Jesus. And this reality explains why so many people have anxiety in life, have angst about life, because we exhaust ourselves in looking to other things for value and purpose, but we were not designed to do that. It's why your spouse, as great as your spouse may be, will never be able to fully satisfy you. 
Because that's not how we were designed. I was not designed by Katie for Katie. I was designed by Jesus for Jesus. It's why your kids, as adorable and talented as they may be, will never ultimately satisfy you. Because you have not been made by your children for your children. You've been made by Jesus for Jesus. And it applies to every area of our life. I've not been made by money for money or by retirement for retirement or by sex for sex or by friendship for friendship. I was designed by Jesus and for Jesus and life and purpose and meaning is found in him and him alone. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing else in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So if you feel like, if you're sitting here and you feel like, man, my job is not satisfying me. Like I just, I accepted a new job and this was gonna be the job, I was gonna retire from this job, but it's just not bringing satisfaction. Or if you've recently retired and you're thinking, man, it's not what I thought it was gonna be. Retirement isn't satisfying me. Or maybe you just finished school and you'd worked really hard and you're like, it just doesn't feel as good as I thought it would. That is a good thing. That is a good thing because school, your job, your retirement was not designed to satisfy you. That dissatisfaction is actually a stirring in your heart to look to Jesus. Jesus alone will offer eternal security, lasting comfort, true identity. Only he can fulfill the longing in our soul for him. Only Jesus can offer this new birth. So look to him. This is one of the reasons This is one of the reasons why we take communion every single week as a church. If you're new to our church, you need to know that every week when we gather together as brothers and sisters in this room, we will, at the end of the teaching, come to the tables of communion as we sing and respond and worship. The reason we do that is because it forces us to take our eyes off the world to find meaning and value. And it forces us at the tables to take our eyes off of ourselves for hope of salvation and to place our eyes where they belong, on the only one who can provide this new birth. We come to the tables and we are reminded of his body broken, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins because he loves us so, so much. I'll close with this quote from Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane. It's so beautiful. He says this, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean caves? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. This morning, as you come to the tables, I pray that you would experience the grace of Jesus, which is never ending. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment, for these dear brothers and sisters who have gathered here together this morning. God, I I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, be at work in this place. God, I know that there are people sitting in here who have not yet placed their faith in you. They, They just haven't looked to you for salvation. They've looked to their own hard works, their own religious behavior. God, I pray that this morning that would change, that as they come to the tables, God, maybe for the first time in their life, that it would be symbolic for them of turning from their former ways and turning to you, looking to Jesus for hope and for salvation. God, for the rest of us, 
I pray that we would recognize that dissatisfaction in our soul is actually just a reminder that we are looking to the wrong place. And that each time we feel that, it would just refocus our attention on your son. God, we love you. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.